Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Nagaraj Kashyap, managing partner of SoftBank's Vision Fund, one of the world's largest venture capital funds with over $100 billion in capital. Nagaraj leads their consumer investment practice for North America. It was amazing chatting with him about how Vision Fund 2 is different from Fund 1, his thesis around the future of healthcare, the e-commerce stack, and how he thinks about scale for non-tech consumer businesses. Without further ado, here's Nagaraj. Nagaraj, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Good, Mike. I'm uh, really excited. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I want to start from the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to investing in consumer-focused businesses, and why are consumer-focused businesses interesting to you? Great question, Mike. I think I have to um, go back uh, down memory lane because I started investing back in 2003. And I would say I, I was an accidental VC. I was escaping management consulting and trying to figure out something that looked like management consulting, but where I would not be traveling to the client, but they would be coming to me. And venture seemed like a really good way to do that. So when I joined uh, Qualcomm's venture group as one of the founding members there, the mandate we had was interesting because you know Qualcomm is a chip supplier to the smartphone industry. We were not sort of saying, hey, let's find the next best chip. That was what Qualcomm's job was. But we were saying, what are the applications that would drive the demand for new features in phones? That was sort of the question at the highest strategic level that we were asked. And you know we said, that means we have to figure out what consumers like and what they use their phones for. So really, that was a little bit of how I started with consumer investing. Of course, a lot has changed and evolved since that. But one example I like to give is, you know, this is, uh, again, going back in time for some of your audience, maybe, uh, maybe the younger folks. Now that we use smartphones every day and we use things like maps and navigation, that Part of the feature set in terms of using GPS or location tracking took actually a long time to happen. What happened is Qualcomm had already provided the chipset and the capabilities in phones, but nobody was actually using it. So one of the most interesting investments on in the consumer side I ended up making was uh, this tiny company called Waze. And while I was attracted to Waze on, on many different aspects, but the end result of that investment and how the company grew was that it basically got consumers really excited about their using their phones for, for much more than just calling or texting. And GPS was obviously a key part of, of the Waze value prop, but also so many other things, including just taking photos of where cops are hiding with the speed traps and, and things like that. It just became an all-purpose app and, of course, a very successful outcome from a financial perspective as well. But that's just a good example of how I got kick-started with, uh, with consumer investing. And I stuck to it for many years because although my kids are older now, when I started in VC, they were younger. 
And the one of the advantage was everything I invested in, they actually knew. It was like, okay, my dad has a cool job. So that was always good to hear from kids as well. Yeah, yeah, I bet. I bet. That's that's amazing. I think that what's also interesting about Waze too is that you had that social network might be a stretch to call for Waze, but you did have that kind of user-generated content, as you said, where you actually, where there's a traffic slowdown, maybe where cops are hiding, but you kind of know in real time what people were actually contributing to the actual network, which is amazing. Oh, it, it was exactly that. It was exactly, it was a combination of some amount of manual map making, but a lot of the other stuff and how the map started getting better and better was user generated. It was a very fun thing to see. And I think uh, many folks don't realize, there's a little bit of divergence, but many folks don't realize that in a ways almost died multiple times. And two specific events really made ways what, what was afterwards. One was I live in Southern California. I live in San Diego. In LA, there's Freeway 405. And way back in the day, they, they said, we're going to close down 405 for some repairs. And basically, every radio station in L.A. said, this is Carmageddon. How can you survive without the 405 in L.A.? And folks said, you know what? The freeway is closed. we got to figure out new ways to get to work and use cars. And they all started blasting out ways as the way to use, use the app to figure out ways. And that actually got them a step function in terms of user adoption. And the second big thing that happened was... During that time, Apple released Apple Maps and people started falling off the face of the earth because it was so bad. And the CEO had to come publicly and say, look, our first version wasn't good. We're going to improve and re-release it. In the meantime, he couldn't say use Google Maps. He said, in the meantime, use things like Waze. And that was really what put them on the radar and it took off after that. But but that's interesting about consumer businesses, you know, the adoption piece of it Sometimes you're to catch lightning. Sometimes there is a there's a more programmatic way to do it, and sometimes none of these things take off. And because you know there's just not a good consumer value prop that exists. It's funny that you say that because I was talking with Neil, one of the founders of DeFi VC, and he was saying he invested the Series A in consumer, and he was saying how though there's some particular categories within consumer where you just have to go earlier because there actually might never be a series A, right? Because you either go you either you have to go so early and these things can take off so quickly and so rapidly that you could go from a seed all the way up to growth safe private equity pretty quick. So that's why as an investor sometimes when you're kind of in that mode, you always have to be kind of looking out for that as well. Absolutely. That's that's exactly right. So, how did you end up joining SoftBank? So I, I think I told part of my story, which was I started uh, doing consumer investing when I first started. It was like almost for 13 years of my venture career, I did consumer investing. I mentioned ways, but we were also very early investors in Xiaomi uh, in China that, again, is a more natural fit with what we were doing. Xiaomi was bringing a completely new model to making smartphones, which was, it was actually a software company with hardware wrapped around it. It was a very different business model that they had. So that was one we had done. We also invested in Fitbit. So a lot of, I would say, iconic brands and and companies over many years. When I got the opportunity to sort of, I would say, quote unquote, do my my own second startup by by starting up the practice of venture capital for Microsoft, and I founded M12, I switched somewhat to doing software investing. Having said that, even... During my five years at M12, while I did software investing, which was 
mainly, I would say, you know, enterprise, mid-market, uh, mid-market SaaS software, a couple of themes stood out for me, which is I personally was attracted to companies that were treating employees in these large firms as consumers. And like, how are you making their life better, their life more productive? And it is less about, for me, selling to the CIO to improve a business process. There's actually very good money to be made in all aspects of enterprise. But the one that attracted me the most was the idea that, after all, employees are also consumers. And, you know, they're working in these large corporations many times. And how do you then make their life easier? And a couple of, or at least one good example of that is a company that I have that I invested very early on in, in M12, and I then came to, to SoftBank and led the growth round as well, a company called Go One. And the best way to think of Go One is they took the Spotify model drawing from consumer and applied that to corporate training, which is, you know, you could argue is one of the most boring things ever. Because when we think of corporate training, you think of compliance. Now I have to do a different kinds of compliance training, required training uh, across the board. But what happens is employees today, are, they have to do that to work in a particular company, so they'll do it. But they also want to do professional and personal development. And because of that, many companies end up with 30 plus content providers for their training purposes, multiple relationships. And that's got the parallels to when consumers were listening to music pre-Spotify. You know, you basically had to go to different places, either downloads, you know, burn CDs, do all kinds of things to do a collection of music. Spotify changed that. And similarly, Goan is doing exactly that, which is they have one relationship with the large company, whether it's a Microsoft or, or a Cisco or what have you, and every employee then gets access to not only required training, but pretty much anything they want to get trained on because there's 100,000 plus pieces of content. So from an employee's perspective, that's a great experience. I don't have to go you know, 15, 30 places to get content. And, I, and the company can now offer multiple options for the employees without any incremental cost which is exactly sort of the way, you know, Spotify, you got one subscription just because you listen to 50 artists or I listen to two, the price is the same. It's an interesting way to, to do it. So even in, in Microsoft or M12, I sort of a little bit focused on these kinds of companies. Another one that I did that's done really well is a company called Kahoot. And Kahoot is sort of fundamentally like almost a verb uh, in, in EDU uh, in K through 12 because they pioneered game-based learning. And it's become in a household name. My, my kids growing up all use cahoots all the way till basically before graduation. That was a great example, sort of more like my consumer DNA coming into ed tech uh, a little bit. I learned the power of software investing given the subscription model. And I had the, the consumer thing. And when SoftBank came calling, and they didn't really call randomly. I actually got to know the SoftBank team over five years because I had a couple of companies that I had made introductions to SoftBank for growth stage investing. And they did invest in a couple of companies where we were early investors. They came in later on, and they turned out to be very successful for SoftBank. And that led to, I would say, you know, just a good mutual respect versus anything else at, at that point in time. And then when they called, I already knew the people and then I thought, wow, I now get the opportunity to do both consumer and software at a really large scale. And that was very attractive to me. The side thing that was really attractive to me was over, you know, starting 2021, I guess, throughout my career, I was always managing a fund. 
And this was an opportunity towards the tail end of, I guess, my career is like, I'm not managing the fund, which gave me more time on investing, working with founders. So it was actually also somewhat of a change in how my career has gone, where I don't have the responsibility for the entire fund anymore. It's sort of more liberating for me to sort of do more, more of my investing shops and work with founders. So you're investing out of uh, SoftBank's Vision Fund 2, is that right? That's correct. That's correct. All right. What's been the the biggest change or or difference from maybe strategy-wise from Vision Fund 1 to 2? Yeah, so I I have to caveat the answer by saying I was not part of Fund 1, but I think on Fund 2, the differences are, it it is a very large fund by any measures. You know, we've announced 40 billion, which makes it about the third largest tech fund in the world. The thesis also remains the same, you know, sort of continued investment companies using tech to transform industries. Um, you know, I think we say AI machine learning, but it's also broadly you know, sort of core tech. That all is the same. What is different is we are making what I would call smaller check size investments. And you know, again, I'm, I'm, it's all relative. When you say smaller check size investments, in my nine months or so here, I've done everything from a 60 million check to a 350. And you know, those are not small. They just we, we get immune to these numbers nowadays because of the funding environment. But these are you know, still very large investments by any measure, but smaller than Vision Fund 1. We are partnering many times at an earlier stage uh, of the companies. So we, we can be more flexible capital. So a company that requires 60 million will put 60 million and not 300. And vice versa, if a company is at the stage where they can actually consume 300, we'll put the 300. So we're taking, I would say, fewer concentrated, large concentrated bets, but we are taking a lot more coverage to also geos and sectors where maybe fund one was not as focused. And, you know, some examples are actually, whether it's enterprise SaaS, ed tech, digital health is a, is a big focus. All of these were not necessarily things that fund one focused on. And finally, with the environment way it is, we've also adapted to making sure we, we make investments much more quickly uh, from a founder perspective that gives them the same experience they're getting with any of our peers. So it's interesting because, and I'd love to know how you're thinking about this current landscape, because of course, valuations have soared over the past few years. There's now been a lot more money um, within crossover funds and, and what have you going into the private markets and going, and it seems like a lot of funds are investing earlier. And the approach from SoftBank, if, if I heard you right, is that you might be doing, I mean, still large checks, but smaller checks than fund one. How are you viewing today's market and as well as what is like the earliest part of a company's life cycle that you might get involved? Sure. No, I think great questions. I think we get asked this uh, quite a lot, as you can imagine. Like, I think stepping back, one is we are very long-term investors, a long fund life. So I would say from our perspective, we will plan to ride out economic cycles. It doesn't matter, you know, if, uh, if something happens in the short term or, or, or you know, we'll, we'll ride it out. The U.S. economy and the world economy and where places we invest in are fundamentally very strong. So we can definitely look past any kind of short term volatility. The other way to answer the question, you know, I try to say instead of focusing on, on valuations and the round sizes, you should also see what has fundamentally changed from an economic environment. And what's fundamentally changed is that company creation and value creation have accelerated significantly over the last five years. And again, while COVID 
I always make sure to say like has been terrible for large populations and you know I think it's brought misery to large part of the world. On the tech side, it's really accelerated transformation, whether it's digital transformation or cloud adoption. All of these things have have sort of compressed the time frame in which companies used to grow faster and they've just growing at a significantly faster rate because of how whatever time was available to them earlier is still available, but they're able to get to the market and get to revenues at such a fast scale. And I've not seen that in my 18 plus years of venture capital. So that is one of the key reasons that valuations you can argue are higher than you would expect at these stages because the value creation is faster. And founders, because they have a lot more choices, there's a lot more capital in the market. You know, by some estimates, about 5x more capital in the market, even compared to like a few years back. So they have more choice. And look, I think it's a great outcome for founders because now they can build large companies with much less dilution than they could a few years back. So from that perspective, it's great. But also these founders, are I said, the kinds of founders are getting, you know, these these rounds, they are taking advantage of playbooks that now uh, are tried and trusted and basically almost sidestepping or going uh, around the mistakes that you know somebody would have made a few years back because the playbooks for many of these companies was not well trodden. So I think there's a lot of uh, external factors that are also powering the market today. And you know what you see is the outcome. You don't necessarily the inputs to it. What everybody in the media will see is the outcome of it, which is everybody's raising you know, a $400 million round at $4 billion. And so that's what you see, but there's lots of inputs as to why that's happening as well. Yeah, those are all really great points. The incredible tailwind that we've seen from COVID when it comes to the rate that people are actually adopting uh, technology. And as well as, you know, because I I asked this, I posed this question as well to Ben's son, who's one of the GPs at Primary Ventures. And he doesn't believe that even though valuations are bigger, they actually deserve to be bigger. Because if you think about technology businesses, they've done extremely well. The largest companies in the world are, are technology businesses. So it's more of the market adapting to realizing that technology businesses are such wonderful businesses. And then you have that package with COVID where you have these incredible tailwinds. So I think that, that is also quite interesting. Yeah, and to Ben's point, the spread between the private and the public markets has narrowed because everybody has seen how technology businesses end up doing in public markets. And they've done really well, to your point. So right now, you know, I think Microsoft and Apple are $2 trillion plus dollar companies. And so it's a, it, it was a, not, not a small... That's an achievement that, you know, folks are just, uh, while it happens now, it's just like amazing to think about that. And that's, I think, uh, only possible because of adoption of these technologies at the rate that you're seeing. Totally, totally. So what is the, maybe the earliest age that you partner with, with companies and why should founders partner with Vision Fund? How do you think as well, aside from capital, how do you think of yourself when it comes to differentiation? Yeah, it's a great point. So when, when do we intersect founders? As I mentioned, we are far more flexible capital in Vision Fund 2. Having said that, you know, I think if you think of a 50 to $60 million check, which is somewhat, you know, I think uh, a threshold, which is harder for us to go lower than that, but let's assume that's, uh, for, for argument's sake, that is it. 
you still have to find a company that has product market fit, has, I wouldn't say hundreds of millions of revenue, but you know, in double digit revenue scale where we can then look at their customer base, we can essentially figure out what areas is the product best suited for, and then be able to deploy their capital so that company can then use that effectively for sales and marketing or, uh, or, for, or for CAC or for you know, just customer adoption. Whatever it is that is the company's business, we should, we should be able to see a clear line of sight to, by putting in this capital, it'll significantly accelerate the growth. And there isn't sort of this risk in whether it's technology development or uh, whether it's a risk in you know sort of just having found product market fit. Now there's exceptions to that, you know, because we also do a number of life science investments, and life science investments are fundamentally different. But I'm more speaking to what I would call consumer and software investments, where we see this. So we could intersect them early on, and of course the later stages are are easier for us to do because there's actually a lot more proof points, and and the capital is is clearly an accelerant at that stage. Why founders work with us? Look, everybody, as I said, uh, who's starting a company or scaled a company has a lot more choice today than they had even a few years back. Just the availability of capital all over has just exploded. But stepping back, we are still a really, really strong platform from multiple ways. One is we are truly global. I mean, I think folks say we are global. We are actually, you know, just from whether it's in China, Southeast Asia, India, Europe, Latin America, whether it's, you know, sort of the, obviously the U.S., we are truly global. We've got about 300 portfolio companies between Fund 1 and Fund 2 that all sometimes act as customers or partners. Uh, I've had companies come to me and said, I'd love to take you up on SoftBank Capital versus somebody else because... If I look at your portfolio, I could make 12 months of my customer list just by selling into your portfolio. They're all so relevant. We also have a very strong presence in Japan, which happens to be not only a large consumer market, but also the second largest software market in the world. So there's a, a lot of those things that we can use to help companies. But I will also say this is still a people business and many founders will also recognize the importance of relationships. And that also is what sometimes they choose people. They choose funds, but they also choose people at funds. And you have to have good combination of both of those to essentially, you can argue, win deals in today's market. Because the easy way to win deals is to say, I'm the highest price, but that is very bad for returns. And that is obviously not the way you want to operate. You want to have a fair price that makes both parties happy, but then you're entering into this long-term relationship that you will help with your personal network and the fund will help with the really this global reach we have. So I think that combination is what makes a good pairing between founders and SoftBank. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And focusing on maybe the earlier stages, like I think that you mentioned, let's say that the minimum check size is maybe like 50, 60 million, right? That you write into a company where there might not be as many proof points as later stages. You said it's a little bit easier. You you can get more comfortable maybe and, and get to a decision, I'd imagine, easier at, at a later stage just because there's a lot more proof points. Maybe the market's a bit more developed. How do you go about, because especially in today's market where deals happen so quickly, Everything is moving so fast. What's your maybe diligence process and how do you come to a decision quickly in a company that's still pretty early on in their cycle, especially in consumer where maybe the other companies you have in your portfolio might not be as helpful just because you're not actually selling to companies, you're selling to consumers? It's a very interesting question. I think it's uh, the answers are multifaceted. I'll take maybe a few examples and try to answer that. So one of the now, pure social networking companies we we founded uh, or funded recently is a company called IRL, which actually stands for In Real Life, and that's an example where you know you could you could do a Series A investment basically based on concept and and product. Uh, you know you've seen the product in the team, but for us we had to see a little bit more than that. And I think you would we could argue that at the stage we invested, it's a company that has shown significant scale in subscriber, but of course not in monetization. That's how some of these companies start. You have to get consumers using the platform, not necessarily paying for it today or not necessarily monetizing in any given way. So IRL, I would say, would be a company that I would classify as one of the earlier companies from uh, from a monetization perspective, but had enough proof points on a market that was, I think, underserved, which is sort of this 13 to 25-ish demographic with a safe place to go and hang out, frankly. I mean, that's how they started pre-COVID in real life. Post-COVID, they did a really good job of making it a more of a hybrid environment where you had some digital events, but also as we came out of COVID, now starting to have some physical events uh, that you sort of organize around in within IRL. And then, of course, there's communities within IRL, like gaming is, is a big community that you basically organize around Minecraft or, or other uh, large games. So I think it's it's an example where you can argue that there was not enough proof points uh, for, for SoftBank, but also just like we talked about consumer investing, if they continue to grow at this stage, they might not be another round. And so you got to intersect them at some point in time. And we felt there was enough there to, to intersect. And where our investment would significantly help them increase how to acquire customers because they already had proven that in many markets and they just had to go to more markets to do that. That's probably one example of maybe an earlier stage company, uh, relatively speaking, that we'd invest in. But then I think, well, let's take your other part of it is how do you uh, make these decisions faster or, or like how, how do you get to them in this market? And there, I think you have to have maybe a little bit of a prepared mind. What I mean by that is you'll see a cluster of companies we have made investments in digital health. And, you know, some of them are direct to consumer health. Some of them are business to business to consumer. And in that, we actually have a fairly strong thesis around, around how we want to approach healthcare. And the way we thought of healthcare was in, in two sort of buckets, which is more like wellness and preventative care as a starting point. So getting folks to be more healthy to begin with, and then also catching things early on versus 
basically investing in what I would call more of the the sick care part of the the equation where you're already not well and there's a, it's a long process to get better. So in that way, in the wellness side, we've got investments in, in Whoop, which is a direct-to-consumer company that sort of has this really amazing band that measures everything and tells you what you're doing, to a company like Tempo, which is an in-home gym as well. So this sort of these are things where we're pretty prepared mind that wellness is a category uh, that I think we want to invest in digital health. Similarly, in the preventative care part of it, since we had good theses around that, we saw companies uh, and were able to come to, I would say, relatively quick decisions on whether this would be a good fit for us because we had done some of the work leading up to those companies. And you know, if you take a company like CityBlock, which is helping the Medicaid population be more engaged uh, through for on their own healthcare needs, so they don't end up in urgent or ER visits. You know, you basically take care of the issues early on using more of a community health model. So that's again in the preventative healthcare. LME, which another company we invested in, in sort of the B two B two C, or I think in this case direct to consumer model as well, is helping with the idea of pediatric autism and the fact that the second tenet of our prepared mind in this is access. It's just availability of access to care. So things like Alamy is solving is for pediatric autism, parents many times in the US have to wait 18 months to get access to care. You know, my point is we have solved the access to taxis and on-demand houses where we can live in through companies like Uber, Airbnb, those are good problems to solve, but they don't save lives. You know, they don't sort of make somebody feel better. And why have we not been able to do that for healthcare? Because it's just, it's not like we don't have the resources. It's just the access because of lack of technology has been really broken. So I think we combine that since we've, you know, as a fund, we also have done investments in like an Uber in the past. So we, we sort of understand how technology can bring these things to bear faster with access. We've done companies like Alamy as well there. Forward Medical, another one which is using technology in the primary care setting to get you proactive view of your health, again, before you actually discover something and it's too late. So a lot of these are, I think, themes in digital health which we went in with a very prepared mind, which allows us to make faster decisions. Now, I will be the first to tell you that venture capital is a combination of thesis and opportunistic uh, investment. It's not one or the other. I think you have to have a little bit of both. You have to be able to intercept something that comes your way that you can quickly realize is a big time, big opportunity. And then, you know, you also go in with a prepared mind on certain topics. So I think it's a combination that allows us to be get comfortable with making investments at a pace that is probably, you know, faster than we would have done five years back. I also wanted to cover another sector that you're focused on is looking at the e-commerce stack and looking at the um, e-commerce infrastructure. And I wanted to know where you actually think the opportunity is when it comes to the e-commerce. Yeah, so I think, you know, being a consumer investor, we, we want to make sure we think of this holistically. It's not just what ends up in the consumers, uh, you know, obviously the whole point is to make their life productive, I'd say, you know, and, or entertain them or make it such that, you know, they get joy in, in consuming these products. That's definitely one part of it. The other is the whole infrastructure around how they actually get these products. And that's where 
even now is so much i wouldn't say low hanging fruit but it's so obvious pain points for e-com brands this is all the way from a brand that's let's say done really well in the US and now wants to go to the UK or to Japan or actually vice versa you know it seems very simple but to actually do that involves change in language translations figuring out currencies figuring out taxes is so many different implications and tech is uniquely positioned to help e-com brands sort of go global wherever they start with global is different depending on you know where you start with that's one example the other one and you know coming from qualcom in the mobile world it surprises me that even today we have not basically get gotten to a point where commerce is totally mobilized is what what we've seen is the traffic is completely shifted to mobile but the actual transactions and conversions are not necessarily as good because people are focused on the web a lot more and consumers use the apps a lot more so it's it's this mismatch where even getting brands the best mobile experience for consumers results in significant conversion increases significant purchase you know sort of delight a lot of our companies that are actually scaled up don't have already done this and i've seen it but there's many many small e-com brands that can't actually do this on their own they're already doing so much and they're not you know sort of equipped with tech people in their shops because they're brand folks and so that's another low hanging fruit and just mobilizing commerce has not happened another big i think uh, category that i think is in early innings is the idea of seamless checkout sort of meeting consumers wherever they are which may not be on the merchant's website or mobile app it could be anywhere and you know how do they check out uh, seamlessly they, you know i get so many of these card abandonment emails and when i get the email i would say okay but now i have to remember to go back to where i initially put the card and then you know see if i still want that and check out how nice it would be if i would just interact with the email itself and the email allowed me to basically say maybe you put a medium uh sweatshirt maybe you actually i want to change that to a large or a small and then just check out right there and so that's really an example of meeting consumers where they are and that checkout experience is fundamentally decoupled from from where the merchant is and so these are all things which make the consumer experience much better another category is i think what would call post purchase experience so you now buy a product that you know has you're now wondering if i buy this product what happens if it breaks down in the past this idea of an extended warranty always existed but the consumer experience both in the buying and then actually using that has been terrible and so how do you improve just giving consumers peace of mind when they're buying something that might actually break down we have one of our companies extend does exactly that you know when you go buy a piece of equipment that is whether it's $3000 like a peloton or you buy a $12 hairbrush i mean they can actually provide you warranties on everything in between at an experience that is really truly world class consumer because they started with that in mind uh their nps scores are are you know i think i won't reveal them it's just really they, no extend warranty provider on on the legacy side would have even seen something like that because they just started with what would make 
the consumer experience great. Related to that is things like shipping insurance. All of these things have been around for a while, but they just have not done service to the consumer. They didn't put the consumer first. And by the way, I've not even talked about this whole world of what I would call non-retail e-commerce. And what I mean by that is we're all focused on D2C and retail commerce, which, you know, we, we can see, go to a website and buy stuff. But also behind the scenes, there is the idea that whether it's a Walmart or a CPG company, all of that, where do they get their goods distributed? You don't go to like a chocolate website to buy chocolate. You go to one of the experiences that you're used to, whether it's an Amazon or other website that you say, okay, I want to order chocolate. But, but that chocolate has to get from the CPG brand that's making it to Amazon. And by the way, that has now been digitized. It's no longer people picking up phones. That's also e-commerce, but in a different manner. And that is not digitized either. So there's a huge, I think, opportunity here that is, is not going to get solved anytime soon. And there's just many mega companies that will be built solving these pain points um, overall on, on the e-commerce stack. I'd also love to know, this was actually a conversation that we had at our last summit. We had a headless commerce panel. And what I think was interesting is, you know, Shopify is going, you know, more enterprise, you know, they you they don't want you to obviously, if you're a business and you're doing really well, obviously want you to stay on Shopify and are building out a lot of more features that are maybe enterprise focused and are maybe cutting out, you know, uh, taking market share away from Magento. And what I'm curious about is, when you think about the Shopify ecosystem and investing, are you thinking about, okay, what's next for an e-commerce business once they reach a certain scale? Do they say on Shopify, is there maybe not an opportunity there? Or is there something, a better opportunity somewhere else? Or obviously the Shopify marketplace is so powerful, so robust that are you also just thinking, you know what, I want to maybe place bets in some of the companies that are in the Shopify ecosystem? We see companies do exclusively Shopify ecosystem, but also one of our companies, which is also, I would say, in this e-com space of providing, um, you know, sort of a little bit more of on this capital side, company called ClearCo. ClearCo basically provides funding for e-com vendors that on Shopify, that could be on Amazon, they could be pretty much anywhere, but that they're selling direct to consumer in some, some capacity. And the thesis there is, you know, they, these are not companies. These are brands that would sell, I don't know, call it 10 to even, you know, a billion in GMV, but they're not necessarily things that are VC backable and they're not going to go to a bank to get a loan. They're just not, that's not the kind of category that, that gives you a loan. So how do they actually fuel their growth? And ClearCo has done a great job of figuring out so much data and what that could come from the Shopify ecosystem, that could come from Amazon, that could come from, ads, um, the ad ecosystem on how is a particular e-com vendor's ads doing on Facebook, Instagram, you know, whatever have you, and then be able to say, look, I will give you growth capital towards ads and inventory because I can track how you're doing with these things. And I'll let you grow faster by giving you this capital, which you wouldn't be able to get access to somewhere else. Now, companies like this are not focused only on the Shopify ecosystem. Obviously, the Shopify ecosystem is a big source of customers, but they're finding customers that are coming from many, many different 
platforms that could be marketplaces, that could be things like Shopify. But you know, again, they are serving a pretty horizontal list of customers. But it's, so it's not limited to Shopify. Shopify is a big, big part of it. No, that's really helpful. That's really helpful. I also wanted to cover, you know, I know you also, how do you think about scale? In, I know we talked a lot about software and non-software businesses. I know you recently made the investment in Viore. My wife is a huge Viore fan. How do you think about scale? If you could walk us through that investment and also how you think about scale for non-software businesses, since they tend not to be, if all goes well, right, knock on wood, they, they tend not to be as big of outcomes as a software business. Yes and no. So I think before I spent a huge amount of time on, on area, and I would also say this is not something where, you know, we would do five of these. And there's a fair bit of unique circumstances that came into play with Viore that I can go into. But I think very few people would would know that uh, Lululemon is a 58 billion market cap company. Now, I'm also not saying every company is going to be like Lululemon, but there is a lot of wealth creation that happens um, in what I would call iconic brands, if you can get there. So there's obviously not as big of a tech mode, but there's always a brand mode that happens. And I think there's some really large companies that can be created with the right ingredients. But in this case, clearly, I think there's a scale factor. There's a unit economics factor. Specifically, I think, you know, thinking like, what is really your LTV to CAC? You'd be really, really good at that. Your store level economics, every store has to produce, you know, I think has to get basically break even in a certain amount of time and you have to have the repeatability of that. You can't have like one store do well and the other store does not do well. So what is the repeatability of that? A lot of times, you know, I think as brands get better and better, Viore gets better, you know, they're going more top of the funnel advertising. So what is the conversion there? There's a, I think, a variety of things that you have to be comfortable that as they scale, many of these costs will actually come down and they're able to leverage the unit economics they already have. Now, in this specific case, the unit economics are actually really great and we don't share the numbers and I don't think the CEO would like me to share the numbers. But it was very clear to us that we hadn't seen uh, a business with such good unit economics, also growing really, really well. And yes, some of the growth did come through COVID, but if anybody's following the news, hybrid work is here to stay, which means that not everybody's going to wear a suit and go five days to the office anytime soon. So this athleisure trend has to be an enduring trend for, for us to have made an investment. I think we made a bet that that is going to be an enduring trend as well. And then I think lastly, in this specific case, we did come across a team and a company that was very culture aligned with us in the way how they trade people, how they think about basically the environment. And this is like the opposite of fast fashion, if you want to think about it. It's complete opposite of fast fashion from an environment impact perspective. The company is pledged to be plastic neutral. They're, they're going through every part of the supply chain and making sure that they get to net zero you know, in, in a few years or actually less than a few years. They're already pretty far along. So it's just the, the brand they're building is, is actually a little bit different and maybe less well understood unless you spend a lot of time with the company, which we did. Probably a unique set of circumstances that, uh, that happened with, with Viore. And uh, I will say that the number of folks who have just said what you just you know, told me about your wife is just 
is one of the other things we saw. It's like without actually having even any stores on the East Coast, I'm getting friends from the East Coast telling me about the brand and everybody just sort of knows about it, but it's not as quote unquote mainstream. And that means there is a huge opportunity in my mind when they actually finally get discovered, if you want to call it that. So I think the opportunity is to build an iconic brand and that is very culture aligned with you know how we view the world. What is one thing that you would change about venture capital? The one thing I would change is the recognition from folks like me in VCs that we are not running the company. We are there to support the founders in their journey. We are there to give them advice when they need it. And that the founder journey is actually very hard. It's really, really hard. And the recognition, I think, does not always exist uh, in the boardroom because it's very hard for many of us to put themselves in the shoes. If you think VCs are inherently diversified, we have a portfolio, which means if one thing does not work out, and by the way, in VC, many things don't work out. That's, that's actually the nature of the profession. We'll be fine because something will be like a ways and it'll do really well. Well, the founder, that is not true for them. He or she, this is it. They're single threaded. Their portfolio is their company. And so I think that empathy and that understanding uh, from VCs is not something that I've universally seen. And I do think it makes the founder's job harder. And I think it just because I frequently get folks in my portfolio texting me at eight o'clock, not giving me a business update. I don't ask for that. But they are just like, look, I have this hard problem. One of my exec team members is not working out. What do I do? Like what? what? So Many times you just need somebody to talk through things versus somebody to tell them things to do, which they are not equipped to. So I think a lot of VCs actually think that they can actually change the course of a company and and really tell the, the founder and the team what to do. And I think that's just not true. And that personality trait, I think, is is something I'd wish that we had less of. No, that's a really great point. That's a really good point. You know, at the end of the day, the CEO is the one who is guiding the company, right? And obviously all the operators that are actually part of the company. VC, even sitting on a board, it's an advisory position. Advisor is the key word. No, that's great. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Professionally, I have to go a long back because I've been in this industry for a long time, but I do think it was a seminal book that really changed my perspective and actually got me attracted to the industry was, was The Innovative Dilemma. And it was... I had worked in large companies pretty much throughout my life before I got into truly doing venture. And the fact of how large companies behave and how they protect their current businesses that allows innovators to come in was just fundamentally transforming for me from a professional perspective. Personally, I would say, you know, a book that I read that actually intersects a little bit professionally is, is this book called An American Sickness. is about our healthcare system. And it's, it's sort of really in many ways eye-opening but also sad and 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 i think it's just uh in, in terms of what all is wrong with our system and how much more we can do to improve it and that sort of then intersects with me on the professional side you know but i've got I'm, I'm surrounded by a family of doctors my wife works for the va my brother works at the mayo clinic they're far more accomplished than i am but you know the healthcare profession um, is just not well served by the current system i 
Totally agree with you on that last point. And I don't think we've had anyone uh, add American Sickness to our uh, book list. So really excited to add that and as well as excited to read it. Um, sounds really, really interesting. Nagaraj, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Mike, it's been a lot of fun for me. So thanks for creating this show and giving us an uh, opportunity to speak to whoever you, your audience is. And there you have it. It was so awesome having Nagaraj on. I really hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 